following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information about our church or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. truth of scripture was just made evident in that last song. We were your enemies. Have no right to even call you father. Have no even right to acknowledge you as our creator because we in Adam rebelled against you. But by the kindness of your heart you have quickened us and made us alive by the Holy Spirit. Saved us through the blood of your son. Your son became sin in his flesh and died on Calvary's cross for us. There was nothing he did to deserve the treatment that he took upon himself. Allow your will to be demonstrating. God demonstrated his love toward us while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. We're here today not to take that lightly, but we're here today to rejoice in Christ because not just rejoicing in his death but rejoicing in his resurrection and not just rejoicing in his death and resurrection but rejoicing that he is seated at the right hand of the Father and we rest in Christ he intercedes for us he prays for us he shepherds us and we have a wandering heart and we tend to drift And we ask you to forgive us. We repent of how we have treated you, Jesus. How we have shown you through the week by not loving our neighbor as ourselves. How we have shown you through the week for not being thankful for the clothes on our back and the food on our table. We took it for granted as if we deserved it. We ask you to forgive us for not waking up, thinking of you and bowing down with our families and saying, thank you, Father. We're consumed with pleasing ourselves. We're consumed with living like the culture when you have called us out. You have chosen us before the foundation of the world to be your sheep. And not just your sheep, but you have made us joint heirs with Christ. We have been placed in a place of honor. And we don't think about it enough. We don't appreciate it enough. But we're here today to say thank you, Father, for pricking our hearts through song to, that we realize the sacrifice that Christ has made for us. Now we're here to hear what you have to say to us through the preached word and bless my brother to stand in the gap, your servant. Fill him afresh with the Holy Spirit. Whatever is on his heart, give him comfort right now. Give him words. Give him the words you want him to say to us because we need to hear from heaven. Some of us, or all of us, need to let go of some things. That sin that so easily besets us. Some of us need to be thankful for what you've given us. And Some of us need to learn how to worship you and not to be ashamed of you in front of our work co-workers and neighbors and testify to who we are in Christ Jesus. They don't even know we're Christians. Forgive us. Let us hear through this sermon what we deserve, like Sodom and Gomorrah. But see Abraham interceding on our behalf. 
Thank you, God, for your preached word. Bless Justin as he preach. May he preach with power. In the only name that matters, in the name of Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Christ. Amen. Church, you can have a seat. That'll preach. <laughs> uh, I hope you are doing well. Um, we get the great privilege this morning of starting back into the book of Genesis. And so if you have your Bible, would you grab it and, and find your place there? And um, how many know that origin stories are important? Origin stories are greatly important. We understand someone better when we know where they come from. We understand someone better when we know what they've been through. Origin helps provide shape. Origin helps us better understand that person. Um, I thought about it. I don't know uh, how many of you realize or recognize just how many Marvel movies come out these days, but um, every you know, third one, is an origin story. Why? Well, one, it's money, but then two, because knowing these characters more, knowing their backstories, knowing what they have been through helps us better understand them, helps us better understand the story. Origins matter. For those of you who are married, I, I hope that you have had an origin conversation with your spouse knowing where he or she came from. Um, if you haven't, that's a great date night idea for you. Uh, if you are single, I encourage you to have this kind of conversation before you get married because origins matter. Origins matter. And in so many ways, Genesis is the book of origins. It's the book that tells us where it all began. We, re we read about the beginning of creation. We read about our beginning as human beings. Um, there is no more important book than Genesis to understand as we think about our origins as God's creation. Um, there's, if you think about it, there is nothing apart from God himself that can't trace its way somehow its origin, some way, somehow, back to the book of, of Genesis. Uh, this is our, our story, and it started here. So this morning and for the next season, we are going to drop back into the book of Genesis. We're going to pick up in, in chapter 18. We, we started this journey through Genesis actually two years ago, and uh, we've been in Genesis now. This will be our third time, and so we've been walking slowly, but let me catch us up to where we are. So we started in this book uh, looking at creation, the creation narrative. We talked about the Imago Dei, the fact that you and I are created in the image of our God. And we talked about how important that is in chapters one and two. We then walked through the fall. In chapter three, we looked at Cain and Abel. We looked at Noah and the flood. We looked at Babel. We looked at the calling of Abraham, and we slowly then began to walk through Abraham and his incredible story, the incredible promise that God gave Abraham. And we walked all the way up to 
uh, chapter 18. And, and now, over the course of this next year, we are going to spend some time in books like Psalms. We're going to look at and walk through Ruth, Titus, and Jude as well. But our hope, if we do this right, is that we will finish Genesis this year. And so we are really excited. We are going to be walking through this book, and, and what a privilege it is. So um, if you weren't with us, by the way, for any of our previous weeks in Genesis, I do want to let you know that, um, that we have recorded and, and placed on our website every sermon that we have gone through and every time we have walked through this book. And, and we organize it by, by text and by books. So you'll be able to find your places. So if there's something you want to go back to, if there's a specific text that you want to study and dig in as we get ready for Genesis, I invite you to go back and take a listen. But like I said today, we are in chapter 18, and I want to paint a picture of chapter 18 for us as we pick up. Um, Genesis tells us that God uh, comes to Abraham and Sarah with a promise, that God uh, gives them a huge promise of descendants, uh, a promise of, of offspring as numerous as the stars. He says, Abraham, look up. That's how many. Look up. There's just one problem. Uh, they didn't have children. I guess there's two problems. The other problem is, is they were past those, the, that, that childbearing age. And so they were standing here years and years and years have gone by since God promises them that they would have children and yet they are living this reality of they still don't have children and they still are unable to have children. And so here in our, our text we have just seen how Abraham had some visitors uh, drop in. And the, the text says that the, the Lord was before Abraham and that two other men appeared with him. And although we don't know the identity of these two men, they most believe them to be angels. But what is clear is that Abraham had some heavenly visitors. And we read that Abraham was hospitable. He opens his house or tent and uh, prepares a feast for his guests. And um, while they ate, the Lord reminds Abraham of his promise. Only this time, it's different. Verse 10 says, the Lord says, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, will have a son this time next year. So now, not only is there a promise, but now there's this time frame given to the promise. And as we read, the promise in this statement was met with an outburst of unbelieving laughter from Sarah saying, yeah, right, have you forgotten how old I am? And uh, the Bible is clear, no, uh, God has not forgotten how old you are, Sarah, um, and we left off with this text asking ourselves this really in, important question. And is anything too difficult for our God? Is there any obstacle too large, challenge too much? Is there anything that can keep our God from making good on the promises that he makes to us? The answer is no. And we left off this text just an incredibly 
encouraged that there is nothing too difficult, nothing too large that can keep our God from making good on his promise, from keeping his promise, even if it means having a baby well past your childbearing years. So we left encouraged. This morning we continue. And we're able to get a better understanding this morning um, of why it is that Abraham was visited by these visitors in the first place. So let's pick up verse 16. Then um, the men set out from there and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. 17, the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him, for I have chosen him that he may command his children in his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised. In other words, Abraham needs to know what is about to go down. Verse 20, then the Lord said, because of the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave. I will go down and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. Now, um, real quickly, um, we need to know two things here right off the bat. First is that Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, what we will continue to see in our Bibles and in our text, Sodom and Gomorrah was an exceedingly wicked city. It was hedonistic, it was wicked, it was notorious for sin, its sin. And, and here in this text, the wickedness, the sin was about to be dealt with. If you remember, we just walked through the prophet Joel, and one of the things that we held to and clung to was the fact that our God takes sin seriously, that our God still takes sin seriously. And and we are about to see just how serious the sin had become here. And the first thing we see is that, that we need to see is that Sodom and Gomorrah was an exceedingly wicked city. But the second thing we need to understand about this before we read on is that Sodom and Gomorrah carried a special significance and meaning for Abraham. See, Sodom was not just a city out there that was wicked. No, Sodom happened to be where Abraham's nephew lived and called home. Sodom was where Lot and his family took up residence. And sure, Sodom was a corrupt city, but Sodom was also home to his, his nephew. And Abraham did not want to see Sodom laid to waste. And so we pick up verse 22. So the men turned from there, went towards Sodom. But Abraham stood before the Lord, still stood before the Lord. They're on their way to Sodom. And you get now this sense of urgency that Abraham has. Listen to the urgency that's in his voice. Verse 23. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, 
so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Let's pause here. Abraham is pleading with the Lord. Pleading with the Lord. Appealing to his character, his nature. Appealing to his justice. Appealing to his mercy and his grace. He is appealing here to who he is. So Abraham is coming before the Lord and appealing to who God is, appealing to God because of who he is. And he says, far be it for, for you to do this. And in verse 26, and the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Now, um, this brings us, I kind of want to pause here for a minute because it brings us to a, our first really big point that I want to that I want to dig into here, and that is that as you see in Abraham, the base, the foundation of Abraham's plea of Abraham's prayer before God is the Lord's character. Let me unpack that just a little bit. Um, Abraham intercedes on behalf of Sodom because Abraham knows who his God is. Abraham knows who he is praying to. Has massive implications for us today. The foundation for our prayer. When we come to the Lord, the foundation for our prayer, all of our pleas before our God should be his character, his nature, who he is, knowing who he is revealed in scripture, and we stand on that as we come to him in prayer. We know that the Lord has revealed who he is through his word. We would not know him apart from him telling us about him. In his word, giving us this. This is the most powerful thing about our scripture, about us having it. This is why there is such a great joy that we have having access to this. And this is why we as God's people should be in the word as often as possible. It's not because of you know, picking up life hacks how to live the best life. No, it's because through this, we get to know who he is. We get to know his character. We get to understand him. And how will that not color and impact our prayers as that happens? How often does scripture and knowing who our God is change the way that you pray for Abraham? The foundation of his prayer to God was because Abraham knew who he was praying to. It was, God, I know that you are like this, so I'm coming to you pleading that you, appealing to who I know you are. That is what Abraham was doing. In the same way, church, the base, the plea that we have before God is the character of our God. The more we know about our God, I'll put it like this, the more vibrant and the more bold, the more real our prayers become before our God. Because we know and we understand that we're not just praying to the idea of our God. We're praying to a living and holy and righteous God. We, we know who it is we're praying to. And that changes everything. I want to give you a modern example. 
um, of what I'm, what I'm talking about. I have a good friend who is in the process of fostering a child. Uh, their family is. And uh, I would love to be able to say that the process has been smooth. And um, that it was like some Hallmark movie where music is playing and it just everything works and it's been easy. And, but it, that hasn't been the case. It has been, um, it has been difficult, it has been hard, and it has even been painful. On one specific occasion, uh, they witnessed what just seemed like the most massive injustice. Um, they witnessed an injustice that, that threatened to take away the child that they loved. And how could this be happening? They witnessed and they were living through what they, this injustice that felt like, how on earth could this be in the best interest of this child? How on earth could this be your will, Lord? And, and because of that, their hearts were just breaking. And I want to ask you something. How do you think they were praying? First of all, um, I know them, and I know that the first thing is they were praying often. There is a sense of great urgency because they knew this was beyond their control. They, they knew, they, they weren't forcing themselves to get on their knees. No, they were being driven to their knees with great urgency and great passion. Um, but the second time is, the second thing that, we, that I saw about their prayer is not only was it often, um, but each time they prayed, they were reminding themselves of who they were praying to, and it changed everything. They were reminded of texts like Psalm 68, 5, which says that he is the father to the fatherless. Psalm 146, 9, that says the Lord himself, the Lord watches over, upholds the widow and the fatherless. Remembering scriptures like Psalm 82, which literally commands us as his people to, to follow after God's own heart in this, saying, give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. And as they were praying, they were drawn to prophets like, like Amos and Micah. They were drawn to texts like Jeremiah 7 that says, don't oppress the fatherless or the wicked. And I will dwell in this place, and then I will give, I will, I will be with you in your fathers forever. Um, they were comforted as they considered who their God is. They were even comforted as they considered the law as they thought about the way that our God is so good and his heart is so great for the widow and the orphan that he wrote it into his very law. They were reminded of, of Deuteronomy 14 that says, at the end of three years, you should bring out all the tithe of your produce. And it goes on to say, and the sojourner and the fatherless and the widow who are within your towns should come and eat that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. In other words, this was so much in God's character that it, he placed it in his holy law to his people. 
you hear it, you see it. To know who your God is, to know who he is, is to know his heart for the marginalized, is to know his heart for the widow, his heart for the orphan. To know your God is to know that your God's heart breaks. And so my friend and his wife were brought to their knees, and and they were praying fervently, knowing the character and the heart of the God they were praying to. That changes everything. Like Abraham, they were appealing to the character of their God, knowing he, he hears them and knowing that he cares. How does knowing the character of your God change your prayers? Has it changed your prayers? It should lead us, church, to pray big and bold prayers. should also, by the way, protect us from praying foolish prayers. Um, Like praying God to bless us in our sin or bless our greed or keep us safe while we disobey. Knowing the character of our God should change the way that we live and it should change the way that we pray. Has it changed you? Do you know the character of the God to whom you pray? Here Abraham does. He said, Lord, far be it for you. Far be it for you to do this. And so he makes this bold request. He says, because you are just and good and you're a God of mercy, would you spare that city? Would you spare Sodom? For the sake of 50 righteous. And the Lord says, I will. If I find 50 righteous in that city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Now, let's continue here. Um, Let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever purchased a vehicle from a dealership? Most of us. Um, How many think you're good at it? (laughs) That's sad. You guys get ripped off. Okay. Got a few. Um, the art of negotiation, hagglers, right? Um, for some of us, I'm assuming now most of us, when we walk into a dealership, um, we are given a price and we're given a deal. We're handed it. We look at it. We think it looks reasonable. And we say, I'll take it. Right? Um, while others of you, just the thought of what I just said makes you cringe. For others of you, you go into a dealership, you have the car that you want in your mind, you have the price you want to pay for it, you have the deal that you want to see happen. And that salesman could come out that door and give you exactly what you want. And you know what you're going to do? (laughs) You're not going to be satisfied with that. You are going to then haggle them down. You know who you are. For you, you don't mind pushing back. You don't mind asking for just a little more. More for less. You don't mind doing that. For others of you, though, for the non-hagglers in the room, we are going to read this next portion of text, and it is going to make you a little uncomfortable. That someone would have the boldness to just keep pushing their holy God the way that Abraham is about to do. But for others of you, for the hagglers in the room, you're going to read this and say, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Abraham would have killed it in a dealership. Um, so listen to what just happened. He said, Lord, if you find 50, would you relent? The Lord says, 
amazingly yes, but then Abraham continues and he says, behold, I have undertaken to speak to you, Lord. I am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 were lacking. Would you destroy a whole city for lack of five? And the Lord responds. And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Abraham is not done. He says, suppose 40 are found there. The Lord answers. He said, for the sake of 40, I, would not, I will not do it. Still not done. Verse 30. Oh, let not the Lord be angry. <laughs> and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. And the Lord answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Not done yet. He says, behold, I have undertaken to speak to you, Lord. Suppose 20. 20 are found there. And he answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Now, um, all the non-hagglers out here are probably cringing at this point because Abraham is still not done. Verse 32, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten are found there. And he answered, For the sake of the ten, I, I will not destroy it. And then the Lord went on his way. He was done with this um, when he had finished speaking with Abraham, and Abraham returned to, to his place. Wow, right? Um, we have talked about uh, Abraham's understanding of God and who he is and his character and how it's the basis of his prayer, but there are a couple of really, really important things that I want us to, to wrestle with in this text. Um, actually, two. And these are so big for us today. And I want, you to, I want you to think about this with me. First of all, I want you to notice what Abraham is asking. He's looking at this wicked city full of sin and full of terrible things. And he looks out over the city that was disgusting, wicked. Notice what it is he is asking for. Notice what he's praying. He doesn't ask the Lord. He doesn't plead with the Lord to wipe them all out. Um, notice too, though, he doesn't ask the Lord, plead for the Lord to just save the righteous out of the city. In other words, he doesn't say, Lord, would you go in, would you get the righteous out, and then would you do your, do your thing? He doesn't, he doesn't say that. What does he ask? He asks, Lord, would you spare the entire city on behalf of 50, 45, 30, 20, 10, would you spare? Because of their righteousness, would you spare the entire wicked city? Um, would you just take that in for a moment? I believe that at times there is this holy feeling of justice that can, we can feel kind of burning in us. And, and we see sinners, we see the way they've denied God, we've seen the way they live their lives, and we can easily pray, Lord, would you wipe them out? Kind of the Jonah Nineveh thing. Would you just do your deed? Um, or or we, could, we could also pray, we've, we feel like we have the right to feel this way, we can also pray, Lord, Lord, before you wipe them out, just take the good ones out and then bring the rain, Right? 
And we feel justified in praying this way and thinking this way because our God hates sin. We hate sin. But for a moment, can we just stop and remember the gospel? Praise God that you and I did not get what we deserved. Praise God that instead of bringing the rain on me, that instead grace was rained down through Jesus Christ. It is easy for us to cry justice when it's them and their kids and mercy when it's for me and mine. Here Abraham is pleading before God, save this city. He's pleading for God, rain down your mercy rather than your judgment. He's appealing to our God, knowing that it is in his perfect character to do that. Let me push this further. Um, I, I want to bring this to, to us today. We are living in a culture that is rapidly changing. We live in a culture that is increasingly growing hostile to and toward Christianity. I'll put it like this. We can somehow, sometimes view our community, um, we can view the moral decay in our community as the real enemy, the real threat. But we are starting to realize that our community views us as the real threat. Um, I've said this before, but this transition has been slow. There was a time when our culture once said yes to our God and yes to our values. And, and what I mean by that is both were accepted and both of them earned favorable social standing. In other words, it was street cred to say you belong to Jesus. Um, it earned a, a place in culture, a place in society. It used to be accepted, both the God and the morals, but then there was a shift that happened. And this shift was subtle. It turned in from, in, instead of being yes to your God and yes to your morals, it became no to your God, yes to your morals. There was this shift that happened, and, and no to Jesus, but yes to Ju Judeo-Christian values. And in this transition, let's be honest, we as Christians were still favored. We still had social equity. It was still favorable for us to be Christians because we were good neighbors, we were good citizens, We were good in the community. But I hope, church, that you are able to see that we are no longer in that world. I hope that we are able to see together that another transition has taken place. It once was yes to both morals and our God. It shifted subtly into no to your God, but yes to your morals. And today we are at a place where there is both a no to your God and a no to your values and morals. Where it once earned us street cred and a favorable place in our communities to say that we are followers of Jesus, 
it is now not. It is now threatening. It is now seen as negative equity. We are now seen as bigots, as outdated, stubborn. We hold to outdated and offensive beliefs. And suddenly the world that you and I live in, suddenly the community that you and I live in, suddenly the community that our kids are growing up in and will live in is a world in which Christianity and biblical truth stand in contrast to popular culture. So what do we do with this? It's easy to throw the towel in on these heathens. It's easy to have one or two of these responses. One, to board up. Um, to board up in our holy huddles, in our holy homes, and say, get thee out of here, right? That's one. Or, second tendency is for us to march out in a holy anger. Church, both of these responses miss the gospel, and neither one of them can be ours. Instead, let us plead with the Lord like Abraham did. Plead with the Lord to pour out his mercy. Pray for the salvation of our community. You and I should be the first to understand, the first to see the grace that God has poured out on you, the grace that you have received, is the grace that we are pleading to be poured out on them. We should be pleading for our God to save us from our sin, to save them from their sin, the way he saved you from yours. Uh, I've said this before, but none of us, none of us should preach hell with a smile. Now, don't hear me wrong. We stand on the biblical truth that the reality we preach, we know the reality of hell. But let that never be a cause for us to have a holy smirk on our face. Instead, let it be the great fuel and great motivation for us to pray and to preach the grace of Christ all the more. In some sense, I mean, we should look at our community the same way Abraham looked at Sodom. Abraham knew that the righteous judgment of God was coming against that community. In the same way we know that the righteous judgment of God is going to come on the, the sin of our community. We know this. So Abraham knew this, and he prayed to the God of mercy, and he pleaded with God, appealing to his character to pour out his grace on them. In the same way, we should be pleading with our God. Appealing to his character to pour out his grace on them. Instead, church, of us praying for judgment, can we instead pray for revival? Judgment is coming. The day of the Lord, we just talked about the day of the Lord. That is coming. That reality is there. But right now, let us pray for revival. The world is going to hell in a handbasket. Church, if that is true, 
Since that is true, then we must do everything that we can do by the power of the Holy Spirit in us, the authority of Christ, the living Christ interceding on our behalf. This is time for grace upon grace. Abraham intercedes that the whole city would be spared on behalf of a few. Do we pray like this? And the last thing I want us to see here in this incredible narrative is the gospel implication. Throughout this whole morning, we have been putting ourselves in the shoes of Abraham, saying how we pray and how we think about our community, um, the way he prayed, the way he understood and approached God. But as we close, I want to remind you that you are also Sodom. In a powerful way, you and I relate well to Sodom. You were dead in your sin. You were wicked. Even the best among us were completely wicked. We are the worst of the worst, sinners in need of saving. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. And dead is dead. Completely dead totally dead. We were Sodom, and righteous judgment was on its way. Again, like Joel says, the day of the Lord, that day is coming. And just like Sodom, church, follow me, just like Sodom, the gospel reminds us that the righteousness of one was applied to the many. It was not 50, it was not 45, it was not 40, 30, 20, 10. The gospel reminds us that it was the righteousness of one that the many have been spared. The righteousness of one that the many are offered grace the righteousness of one that justifies the wicked sinner. The righteousness of one that saves guilty sinners, transforms guilty sinners into forgiven children of God. The righteousness of one. Abraham appeals to the character of God, and he says, God, would you spare the many because the righteousness of a few? Well, a couple thousand years later, God was going to answer that prayer. As Jesus is that one, and we are declared righteous through him. Have you placed your faith in Christ this morning? The Bible says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Do you trust in him this morning as your Lord and your Savior? And for those of you who do know him and walk with him, are you interceding on behalf of your community in prayer? Are you asking for revival? Do you believe that God can still bring revivals? <laughs> are you asking that God would pour out his grace? Do you have confidence in the gospel to change hearts of sinners, to pull 
the American church out of our slumber? Is your confidence in the gospel to do that? And if it is, is that reflected in the way you pray? We know that it's God's will that none should perish. Amen? And so as we pray, God, would you spare? Would you show your grace on my neighborhood, on my neighbors? Would you show your grace on my community? As we pray these prayers, we know we're praying the heart of our God. Let us pray for revival. I hope you believe in revival still, um, because he can still do it. Let's pray together. Lord, we first come to you acknowledging our sin. Acknowledging the fact that all of us can relate well to Sodom in this story. Acknowledging the fact that it was the righteousness of your son, Jesus Christ, that was applied to the many so that many sinners can come to know and come to follow and come to know forgiveness in in you. We stand on that and we, we know that. For all of us, for any of us in this room who have not responded to the gospel, I pray that that reality just, that your spirit would just grip our hearts. But Lord, if we're here and we have responded to the gospel, we do follow you. I pray that that reality would grip our hearts. I pray that the reality that we can, in fact, relate to Sodom will change the way that we pray then for our community that looks like Sodom. God, your word tells us that we have been reconciled and now given the ministry of reconciliation. And so I pray that even today, even tonight, as we come before you in our prayer before you, that you would shape our prayers by that grace, by that mercy, by that reconciliation. I pray for revival in our community. We do not need any gimmicks. We do not need to be entertained. We do not need to be placated. We do not need to be lulled to sleep. What we need is your spirit. And we pray that you would indwell us with your Holy Spirit, that you would convict us, that you would move, that you would work, that you would bring a revival into our city. As Abraham prayed, Lord, we pray, would you spare, would you spare them on behalf of the righteousness of the one? So we plead the blood of Jesus over our community and we pray that many, many, many would come to know you and to know this grace. Let that just shape us. In Jesus' name, amen.